Centurion number four. Begin in Luke 7. Luke 7, 1, it says, Now when he, Jesus, had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick, was ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loves our nation. He's built us a synagogue. And then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go. And he goes, and to another, Come. And he comes, and to my servant, Do this. And he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that one person can make a difference? You think one person can make a difference for someone that is in dire straits? Or how about one person for a group of people that are in trouble? Can one person make a difference? I tend to think maybe not in an election, It's like, what's one vote in the midst of millions? And a lot of times we tend to think about ourselves, who am I? You know, nobody really seems to want to listen to me. I'm just like a voice crying in the wilderness, and there's nobody out here in the wilderness with me. Not really making much of a difference. The wilderness is empty. But look at our story here. There's really three main characters in this story. We have the centurion, we have Jesus, and we have this desperately sick boy. Let me ask you, who of the three of those characters went through the greatest change? I'd say it was the boy. He went from being deathly sick, paralyzed, it says racked with pain, tormented with pain, to being fully restored. Up, walking, and totally pain-free, wasn't he? He was perfectly whole and healthy. He went through the greatest change of anybody then there. Yet, he's hardly mentioned doesn't really say much about him at all. The focus is on whom? It's really on the centurion, isn't it? That's what we've been talking about for three weeks, his great faith and what gave him his great faith. The fact that he could clearly see what no one in Israel apparently could see, not like him, the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, the power and authority of his word. That's where the focus has been. But there's one aspect of this story that I want to end this series on that we can easily overlook. And that was, it talks about his faith, how great his faith was, how he got that great faith. But what we need to think about today is how was that great faith exercised? Did the centurion personally benefit from his great faith? And you're like, well, he got his servant healed. You know, he needed him. Are you saying that like we need our cars like their investments that we have to keep up and running and repaired. And here's what we need to remember. He could get another servant at the snap of his fingers. That wasn't a problem. He didn't need his servant. 
vast supply of ready and willing men to be servants. And the thing we need to see is he didn't personally benefit at all by coming to Jesus. He wasn't sick, was he? He didn't need money, and he wasn't helping his prestige any amongst his Roman peers, his Roman soldier peers, by humbling himself and asking this Jew who was a nobody to come help. It was totally humiliating. What I want to talk about is this centurion, this Roman soldier, used his great faith for one reason only. He loved this young servant and he wanted him well. Not to serve him, that wasn't why he wanted him well, but for the servant's own sake, for his sake. And that's what he did. What he did is he carried the servant's burden in his own heart. He carried that servant's burden in his own heart and made it his burden, didn't he? That's what he did. Have you ever loved someone to the point that their burden became your burden? Their burden was greater than any burden you have, and you've forgotten yourself to see their need met. And that's exactly what we have here. This is a lesson, an important lesson for us to learn, okay? There's 35 to 40 miracles, depending on who you're reading and how they count the miracles Jesus performed in the New Testament. It's 35 to 40, and roughly one-fifth of those miracles involved individuals exercising faith on behalf of of another person. And they were intercessors. They were people going in between, go-betweens, if you could say it that way. And what they did is they connected the great power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ with someone over here that had a great need. They were the ones in between that made that connection happen. And think about it. We're asking the question, can one person make a difference? What if that centurion wasn't part of that boy's life? What if that boy was a slave to another centurion and he probably would have just discarded that sixth slave like a pair of worn out shoes? He would have been like, I don't need this. This kid is annoying me. He can't walk. He keeps groaning. Just get me another one and get rid of this kid. Get this sick boy out of here. That boy's life would have had a totally different ending, wouldn't it? Than it did. It's like the old... A Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart movie. <laughs> it could have been like that. This centurion, he didn't say that, did he? This one man, this one individual with his great faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his willingness to carry this boy's burden in his heart did make a difference in this boy's life. A huge difference. One person can make a big difference in someone else's life, and that's each of us in here. What we need to see, first of all, is God is looking for that one person to stand in the gap. He is. If you will put something there in Luke 7, and I want to look at a few places here in the Old Testament, if you would turn to Isaiah 50. Look at a few places in Isaiah. The first three verses there. We read in Isaiah 50, beginning in verse 1, it says, Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? He says, Behold, it's for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all, God would say, that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? <laughs> 
Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. God's people at this point, they're having trouble. They've been sold into captivity. And, you know, they thought that the Lord had abandoned them. And that's what they say. If you just back in chapter 49 in verses 14 and 15, they say this. Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And God answers, can a woman forget her suckling child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, he says, they may forget. Yet God says to Israel, yet I will not forget you. He's saying here in this verse one, he says, I've never divorced you. You pull out the certificate to show that. He says, I have never divorced you. I've never sold you because I didn't have to. He's saying, I'm not in debt. He says, but your sins have caused you to go into captivity. In verse two, he says, here's my people. They're in trouble and they need help. And he says, and I came looking for someone to stand in the gap. He said, but I found None. I came just looking for one man and found none. I called, he said, but there was no one, no person answered. And God is saying, that's all I wanted. That's all I needed was one person. That's what he's saying there. So he's saying, look, the problem's not with me is what the Lord is saying. He's saying, I didn't suddenly get a short arm or I can't reach down and help you. Or it's not that my power's been diminished. It's none of that. He's like, I still have almighty, unlimited power. The point is, we're trying to get at with this is, he's saying, I'm just looking for one man to help. Turn over a few more chapters into chapter 59. And look what it says here in verse 1. Now, we're familiar with Isaiah 59.1, I hope. In Isaiah 59.1, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. And he's saying again, there is nothing wrong, God's saying, with my power or my hearing. I don't need a hearing aid. What he's saying through that is, it's implied that there's nothing wrong with his heart. Nothing wrong with his willingness to help his people out. The problem's not with me, it's with you, my people. He's saying the same thing here. And he goes on in the rest of those verses, for quite a few verses, to talk about the sins of the people at the time. And I mean, it was a black time, as black as it gets with the way he's describing Judah and Israel. But yet, look what it says in verse 16, Isaiah 59, 16. And God says in all this blackness, he says, and he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was what? No intercessor. It says, therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness, it sustained him. God was looking, wasn't he? He was looking and he said, there was no man, not one. And what kind of man was he looking for? It says he was looking for an intercessor, someone to intervene. There was trouble. He doesn't want to have to judge his people, but he's saying there's no one there to intervene. No one. None. What was his reaction to that? He says he wondered. The word means he was shocked. He was appalled, astounded. And listen, we know it is hard to surprise God, isn't it? He talked about Jesus. He only marveled twice. But it says that Almighty God is shocked that there is not a single person, not one man that would intercede for his people. Well, who did he have before this at times? Moses? 
Moses stood in the gap, didn't he, for his people. He was ready to judge. That one man was able, one man was able to keep a whole nation from being destroyed. And God can't find that person now. What was his solution when he can't find a person? You know what his solution was? The incarnation. The incarnation. God himself. He says, I can't find a person to stand in the gap. I don't want to destroy my nation or men. And God himself became a person. And that's why we have there in verse 16, it says, therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. Well, who is his arm? Turn back to Isaiah 53. And this is familiar, but look at verse 1 in light of what we're talking about. Isaiah 53, 1, Isaiah says, well, who has believed our report? And look what it says in the second half of that. To whom is what? The arm of the Lord revealed. The rest of 53 is talking about the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, who's believed our report? Who is the arm of the Lord? This one that God says, my arm had to bring salvation. There was no man. I had to become a man. And who is that revealed to? That's who salvation comes to. And what we have here in verse 12 is how the arm of the Lord worked on our behalf. There's two places. I just want to look at this one. Two places in Isaiah 53 where it talks about, uses the word for intercession. But look in verse 12. The end of the chapter it says, God says, Isaiah, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I want to focus in on this last verse here, last part, last sentence. It says, he bare the sin of many and did what? He made intercession for the transgressors. We see two concepts here that make up true intercession, two concepts that are brought together, the bearing of a burden and prayer, don't we? Both of those are brought together. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our model. He bore our guilt, bore the guilt of our sin, bore our burden on the cross, and he also prayed for us, didn't he? And like the centurion, did he benefit at all from any of that in that sense? He lost everything on our behalf, didn't he? Just for our sake. And he's our model. He's the one whose steps we are to follow. He bore our burden, prayed for us. Now, obviously, we can't bear sin like our Lord Jesus Christ did, can we? But we can bear and we are obligated as his followers to bear the burdens of others and pray just like he did. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So I'm not under a law. We're under the law of Christ to love thy neighbor as thyself. And God is telling us here that one person can make a difference. And I'm saying he's still looking for that one person. I want to look at two other places, if you don't mind. If you would turn to Jeremiah, these are both familiar verses, but we want to read them anyways. Jeremiah chapter five and verse one. And in Jeremiah 5, 1, it says, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof. Here we are again. If you can find a man, if there be any that execute judgment that seeks the truth. And God says if he can just find a man, what does he say at the end there that he'll do? Pardon it for one man. 
Now, Jerusalem was his holy city. It was his beloved city. And he's saying, search high and low. I don't want to judge his place. I really don't. I want to have mercy on it. Search high and low. If you can just find one man, one righteous man, what does he say he'll do? He says, I will pardon it. What does that tell us? What what are we trying to get out of that is that that shows the power of one righteous person. Can one person make a difference? Look what it says there. And then turn over to Ezekiel 22. Look what it says there, Ezekiel 22 and verse 30. And once again, the Lord says this. He says, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But he says, I found none. I thought he wanted was one. That's the point, right? One person can make a difference. One person to carry the burdens. And there are so many needs in front of us in our body. And we all have a sphere of influence that's unique to us. Certain people, where we work, where we live, who our neighbors are, who we come across, that's unique to us. And there's burdens everywhere there, isn't there? And the question we have to ask ourselves is, in light of God saying he's searching, he's looking, that one person could have made a difference, what we need to ask ourselves, the question I'm raising today is, am I willing to be that one person, that man? God's looking for just one person. One person could make a difference. And are we willing to take the burden of another and make it our own and pray for them like our life depends on it because their life may depend on it, on us. I'm not away from our text. Isn't that what the centurion did? Didn't he take on his servant's burden like that was his burden? Like he was the one dying? He'd go on any extreme to get help for that boy. And here's the issue, though. We tend to not look at ourselves as intercessors. We think that's just a ministry reserved for certain special people. That's just reserved for Bevington. I mean, look, we all can't be Bevington. We all can't spend nine straight days in a hollow log. We, nobody'd have a place to live because nobody'd have their rent paid. That's somebody that was single, was able to do that. But we are all still able to pray, aren't we? You know, we tend to regulate that to, well, that's for the old women. They're their widows and just got all this time on their hands with nothing else to do. And all the older women are in here thinking, like we don't have anything else to do. That's what I'd be thinking. But Luke 2, we think we're like Anna. She was a widow of about 84 years old, which departed from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayer night and day. And we're like, well, she was able to do that. That's just not my calling. (laughs) And we comfort ourselves with that. I would contend today that we are all called to be intercessors. No exceptions if you call yourself a Christian. No exceptions. And I could show you that from Scripture. You're thinking, you can't? I can. (laughs) We go back to Luke 7 and turn a few chapters over to Luke chapter 11. Beginning of verse 1, and it came to pass... That is, Jesus, he was praying in a certain place when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now, let me ask you, do you think when he's teaching those disciples, he's teaching us how to pray? We get an amen on that one? 
So we're all in on this, right? We're Christians, we're disciples. Well, here's what he said to them. He said unto them, when you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And look what he goes on to say in verse 5. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? And shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Well, trouble me not. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I can't rise and give you. And I say unto you, Though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And I say unto you, Jesus says, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you for everyone that asks receives. He that seeks finds and to him that knocks it shall be opened. So after giving us a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is still teaching his disciples how they should pray. When we look at that parable, that is a model of intercessory prayer. He tells the parable of the friend that comes to another friend at midnight. Andrew Murray gives six aspects to this parable. And I believe they apply to all intercessory prayer that we find in the Bible. Our centurion's case fits in here perfectly. And there's six things. And we'll write them up here for you. And the first one is there's an urgent need. This is all what's involved in intercessory prayer. There's an urgent need. And look what it says. This friend has come to this man at midnight. Now, that's not a convenient time, is it, for somebody to show up to your door wanting to spend the night coming at midnight. But this guy has traveled a long ways. He's hungry, doesn't have anywhere to get food at that hour, and he has a need. He can't buy bread. And here he is at this guy's doorstep. An urgent need, isn't it? There are needs, true needs, to apply to ourselves all around us. The centurion had an urgent need, didn't he? His servant's dying, and we have a lot of urgent needs at our doorsteps, just like this guy in the parable. We have needs in our family, unsaved loved ones. That's a much more urgent need, I think, than we realize. Urgent needs right at our doorstep, needs at work, unsaved coworkers that you're around. Needs here at church, we have people in trials of all sorts. Do we really believe that only God can help in these situations? If we believe that, that would make us intercessors, wouldn't it? And the thing is, that is what our prayer life needs to be about. A person that is only praying for their needs or spends most of the time praying for their needs, is that really what we see happening in the Bible? Because what does it say? You seek first the kingdom of God and he'll take care of all of your needs, won't he? We were taught that early on, that that's what the faith message is all about. And the second thing I, I think we see here in this parable is willing love. Willing love that's taking place here. And by that I mean that that other person's problem becomes our problem. We bear their burden. The man didn't tell this man that came to his house, I'm sorry, I don't have any bread. I feel your pain, but it is too late. I can't help you out. He didn't tell the guy that. 
what we need to see is it wasn't convenient for that man to help the other man out, was it? convenient. Knocking on your door at midnight. Guess what? He's probably woke him out of after working a hard day in the field. He's getting woken up out of his sleep. He has to get dressed. He has to go over to his neighbor's house. He had to humble himself to ask his neighbor to help. Just like for the centurion, it wasn't convenient for him, was it, to help out his slave? Not at all. Had to take him away from his duties. He had to get other people and ask them to go ask Jesus to come to his house. And it was humbling for him. We're talking about intercession. Intercession and praying for others is never convenient. Because there's always something else you could be doing or your flesh would like to do. Praying is always hard. It is. I'm talking about true prayer is always hard. And we would always rather be entertaining ourselves in some way other than praying. But the question I'm bringing up here is that one man to stand in the gap. What is love? Love is not all this, you know, I want to talk to you all the time and I want to, you know, love is sacrifice, isn't it? And 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, love does not seek its own does not seek its own things. In other words, love is not selfish. It's not only always thinking of its own comfort and happiness. In Philippians 2, 4, it says there, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. People that only do things that only benefit themselves, guess what they won't do? They won't pray. But true love prays. It is a willing love, willing to help and look out for the other person's interest. A third thing I think we see here, and that is that this man was powerless to help. And we have to realize that. Look what it says in verse 6 of chapter 11. He says, for a friend of mine in his journey is come to me. And what does it say in the end? He says, I have nothing to set before him. He's saying, I have nothing. I see this great need. I'm burdened. I want to help. I really do. But you can be burdened and have love. And guess what? You may not be able to help in any way. And that's what it was for this guy. He's like, I have no way of helping this person. That was this centurion too. Didn't he send the Jews pleading with Jesus? Would you please come and heal my servant? There's nothing I can do to help this boy out. You have everything I need. The Lord has everything I need to help my servant. That is what will bring us on our knees for the sake of others. When we see their need and our utter helplessness to do anything and that only God can help. So you see a relative that's lost. How about a lost person? And you love them. What can we really do? We can give speeches, tracts. We can have all this concern. But none of that can penetrate their heart, can it? Now, we may need to speak to them, but really, only the Spirit of God can. I mean, we're, in a sense, helpless. It's not just a matter of talking, is it? Only the Spirit of God can. When that's the case, what can we do? Plead for them in prayer, isn't it? Isn't that what we can do? The fact that we have no way of helping, that should be an encouragement to anyone in here that feels inadequate. You may think, man, I'm inadequate or whatever. But listen, when you're on your knees pleading on behalf of somebody else, <laughs> you are more than adequate in that sense. You can be adequate for others. 
You can say, I have nothing, I am nothing, but they're the ones that will go to God, a person that really realizes, I'm not going to cleverly get my loved one in the kingdom. It's going to be because I'm on my knees pleading with the one that has all the power that can change and open their heart. Only God can do that, can he? And that's shown by these cases of healing that are impossible. That's how it's demonstrated. I mean, they're real needs. But these people with leprosy and they're dying and, and other incurable diseases, Jesus is their only hope. And it's still that way today. Medical science hadn't progressed that far. So powerless to help them. We'll pray on their behalf. That's what the centurion did. And the fourth way this comes in play here is we have to do all that how? I mean, it has to be done in faith and prayer. There's three friends that can almost get a little confusing in this parable. There's the friend that comes to the friend's house at midnight who goes to the friend to get help for the first friend. I mean, you got all these friends. Even though the second friend, the one the guy comes to his house, has no bread, what does he have, though? He has faith that his rich friend up the road has more than enough bread, and he also has faith that he's more than willing to help. That all he has to do is what? Ask. And that's the faith that overcomes the inconvenience of a midnight trip. That's what the centurion believed of Jesus. He knew Jesus had all the power, all the authority. It was just in his word. Jesus had everything he needed to heal his servant. And he knew that Jesus was more than willing to help. All he had to do, the centurion knew, all he had to do was ask him. And he would be more than willing to help. What we need to see, our faith needs to see, is that God has an overabundant supply to meet every need and is willing to shower it on people. He's not unwilling. We need to see that. The eyes of the Lord, we give in this scripture many times, run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Why are his eyes running to and fro throughout the whole earth to execute judgment? That's not what it says there, is it? He doesn't want to do that. He's reluctant to do that. He will when he has to, but it says his eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong. He wants to do that. I mean, we really need to see that. That's his heart. Romans 8. It says, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He spared not his son. He won't spare anything else to help somebody that's in need. Ephesians says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He has this abundance in his heavenly storehouses. It's just waiting up there. He just wants to pour it out. He's looking to. He wants to. He just needs that one man to stand in the gap and believe him that he'll do that. Just need to come to him and to ask. And the fifth thing we see here, which is really the main point of the parable, is what? It's persistence. That guy that's going next door or up the street, wherever his rich buddy lives, he comes across a problem. He's trying to help this weary, traveling, hungry friend of his. He comes across a problem he hadn't anticipated. His rich friend doesn't share the burden for this guy like he does. Look what it says in verse 7. He says, and he from within, this other friend, the rich friend, shall answer and say, well, trouble me not. 
Don't make your troubles my trouble. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. And he says, and I cannot rise and give thee. But I'll tell you, that doesn't discourage the guy, does it? Not one bit. Here's what we need to see is this burden that he's taken on of his friend in love and knows this guy has what he needs. He's dealing with the situation here. He is not going to give up on it. He's not going to give up that easy. I've got this buddy here, and his burden is now my burden. And you've got more than enough to meet our needs and his need, and you're my friend. You've got to help me, he's telling him, isn't he? And he's like, I'm not leaving until you do, friend. You want to stay friends? Then you need to help me out. I don't know if he said that to him or not. That's the Syrophoenician woman, isn't it? She's another one of those. She's got a mother's love for her daughter. Jesus is the only one that can deliver her daughter. And she's got this evil spirit. There is no other help. I'm not putting her on medication. You can help Jesus. And you may try to get rid of me with insults, but I'm not going anywhere until you bless me. And I think sometimes it doesn't it seem like God is just trying to get rid of us and shake us off. That's the way it can appear a lot of times rather than help us. But in reality, what is he doing? We've talked about he's just testing our faith. And through that, he's going to strengthen our faith from his side. That's what he's doing from our side. It's like, man, you're making me feel like a pest sometimes. Jacob, back in Genesis, he's wrestling with a man. It was the pre-incarnate Christ in the middle of the night. All of these tests of faith somehow happen to happen around midnight into early in the morning. And that's what's going on. You know, it seems like a lot of our hard trials come during the night, don't they? Can't wait for the sun to come up. But it seemed like all the Lord wanted to do was get rid of a Jacob, get away from him, not help him. And yet we know from that story that Jacob, what? He wouldn't let go. He was persistent. And it says this in Genesis, it says, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw the man he was wrestling with prevailed not against Jacob, it says he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, the pre-incarnate Christ, let me go for the day breaks. And he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go except you bless me. He's like, you can take my leg out of joint. You can break my arm. You can take my fingernails and peel them off one by one. I'm not letting you go until I get what I need. And you just get this impression that this man is like, first he does that. And he's like, would you just let me go? The sun's coming up. Jacob's like, I'm not letting you go. It's this persistence that we're talking about here. And Andrew Murray said this. He says about persistence, he says, this is the central lesson of this parable. In our intercession, we may find that there is difficulty and delay with the answer. It may be as if God says, I cannot give thee. Like the man here, I'm not going to get up. I'm not getting myself out of bed. I'm not troubling myself. It may seem that way, he says. It is not easy against all appearances to maintain our confidence that he will hear and to persevere in full assurance that we will have what we ask for. He's saying it's not always easy to do that, to have that confidence when it appears he's reluctant, that God's reluctant or not going to answer us. He says, and yet, this is what God looks for from us. He so highly prizes our confidence in him. It is so essentially the highest honor the creature can show the creator that he will do anything to train us in the exercise of this trust 
in him. Blessed is the man who is not staggered by God's delay or silence or apparent refusal, but is strong in faith, giving glory to God. And we need to remember, Jesus is teaching us how to pray, isn't he? In this parable. And it is our Christian duty to pray for other members and not give up other members of our church. If you would, turn to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6.18. Paul writes, this is part of our armor, part of our, our spiritual armor at the end. He says that we should be praying always with all prayer. And you know what supplication is? That is urgent, an urgent request to meet a need. That's what supplication is. Somebody's got a need. And it's urgent that God steps in and intervenes here. And he's saying we should be praying always with all prayer and supplication. How? In the Spirit. And watching thereunto with all. There is a word that means firm persistence, perseverance, and supplication for all saints. So he's saying there in verse 18, for all saints, all the ones we know of, in and out of this church, all saints, if we know a saint that has an urgent need that needs supplication, we are obligated, he's saying, to make that on their behalf and not to just give up if it doesn't seem like anything happens right away. We need to be firmly persistent. We need to persevere with them in their trials. Amen? Amen? Amen. That's what love will do, won't it? We all are falling short in this. I mean, this is like speaking to me big time. How many times we find other things to do. But on the other side, I'll tell you what I've found and you should find. The times that you do set aside, whether it's for your children, a situation that you know about, or another brother and sister, and you set those times aside and dedicate yourself, it's an encouragement and a blessing to me to say it does make a difference. And it encourages a man, you need to do that more. We're all convicted we don't pray for people and take their burdens on enough. All of us can get convicted about it. This is not a condemnation. Let's just get on the ball. Let's listen to what the Lord's saying. This is what's in the centurion story. I think it's there. Amen. But the last thing I want to see here, number six, and this is not least, even though it's last, and that is this, that the answer is certain. The answer is certain. Look what it says back in Luke 11. Look what it says there at the end of that. Verses 8 to 10. And Jesus said after saying all of that, he says, I say unto you, though the friend will not rise and give him because he is his friend. Yet, he says, because of his opportunity, what does he say? He will rise and give him how much? As much as he needs And on the basis of that, look what he says in verses 9 and 10. And then he says, and so I, the Lord Jesus Christ, say unto you, ask and it shall be given. You seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives and he that seeks finds and him that knocks, he says it shall be opened. How could our Lord make it any clearer that our time spent in prayer for others is not in vain? Amen? But the thing is, we have to pray, even praying in tongues, praying in the Spirit. Just praying for people is not what He's asking us to do, is He? That's not what intercession is. It's praying in faith. 
that is key. I'll take two people that are genuinely interceding for me in faith versus hundreds that I'm told are praying for me. And I don't know whether there's faith or not, and maybe there isn't. I'm saying, just give me two that are praying in faith, or five or ten. I want that, because that's going to happen. But we need to all remember, even praying in tongues, it's got to be focused prayer. And it's got to be focused prayer in faith. If you would, turn to James 5. This is more than I typically would have us turn to, but I think it's important. I want to look at James 5 here, and look what it says in James 5, beginning in verse 14. James 5, it says, is any sick among you? It says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And it says there that the prayer of faith shall save the sick. The Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, it says, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. And so the prayer of faith has been offered. It says the Lord has promised to raise up that sick person. But my question would be, when that has taken place, does it stop there? Because In the context of that, look what we have in verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. And I think the context is indicating that prayer will go up for that person until the Lord raises them up. Because he doesn't say when that will happen. It may happen that day, that minute. That hour, it may be a week, it may be as long as a month later. And I think there's an obligation that's given there in context that that person should be prayed for, interceded for, prayed in the Spirit for. There's three different words in verses 15 to 16. They're just translated prayer in my King James Bible, but they're three different Greek words. And the first one's in 15 when it says the prayer of faith. That just means a simple petition to God. You're asking God to do something in faith on behalf of that person. The second one is in verse 16 where it says confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. And that word there for prayer just means to speak to God. Speak to God. And the third, also found in verse 16, which says what? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. My reading of that is that in that verse 16, the third or the second use of prayer, the effectual, fervent prayer, is telling how the first prayer in that verse where it says pray for one another, how that should be offered. It shouldn't just be offered casually or you're looking at your fingernails or thinking about the football game. He's saying, pray for one another that you may be healed. And here's how I want you to do it. The effectual, fervent prayer should be given for those people of a righteous man will in this situation. Because that whole James 5 is indicating the person's sick enough they're laid out on their back like that paralyzed boy potentially dying. Not just somebody with a hangnail or a headache. I mean, it's a serious thing. And he's saying, that's something you should be pressing in for. And saying the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, well, it will avail much in this situation. It needs to have much availed. He goes on to give the example of Elijah. 
Elijah had a word from the Lord, didn't he? He had the promise that rain would stop at his word and the rain would come. But did that keep him from pressing in for the manifestation? He sent his servant. It's this thing of persistence seven times, didn't he? That's what we read. Six times that servant's coming back and saying, what? I saw, hey, nothing there, boss. Here we're talking about the answer is certain through our intercession. He had the promise, but he still, he's like, I'm on my knees. It says he prayed fervently. Go back and look again because I'm telling you, it's going to be here. He's coming back and he's like, you will see it. It is certain. That's his faith speaking, but he still interceded, doesn't it? I think he had to battle doubt and fear. You know why? Why else would James have to throw in there that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as us? He's just a man. He wasn't Superman prophet. He had to battle like we do, subject to like passions. But he wasn't discouraged, was he? Just like the centurion, just like the man in our parable, wasn't discouraged about the results weren't coming as quick or things didn't seem to be going the way he did. No, Elijah's like, it is going to happen. I've got a promise and God is faithful. It's going to happen. But I'm still, I'm pressing in here. I'm not taking this for granted. It says he prayed earnestly. The Greek means he prayed with prayer. He was focused. He was intent on what he was praying about. He wasn't praying and dreaming about a cookout at all. He wasn't doing that. He prayed earnestly. And here's what we see. God did what? He rewarded that prayer, didn't he? He rewarded that prayer because it says there in verse 18 that he prayed again. And what happened? The heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth its fruit. And that's what the Lord's telling us at the end of that parable we're looking at, isn't he? Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying, I say unto you, the answer is certain. If you're praying according to my will, you're following all these things here. You're interceding on behalf of somebody. And you're a righteous person. Isn't that what James says? The effectual, fervent prayer. We have to be righteous. You can't be living in sin and think your prayers are effective. But man, oh man, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, it avails much. It has power with God. Jesus says that I say unto you, he says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you'll find, knock and it shall be open. And he adds, just in case you missed it the first time, he basically says the same thing the second time. He says, everyone that asks receives. He that seeks will find. Him that knocks, it shall be open. And all that is, is another verse we quote all the time, Hebrews eleven six. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. That is the way God is. Now, listen, that is either true or it isn't true. I mean, those are pretty comprehensive, absolute statements made by our Lord and James and the writer of Hebrews, isn't it? It challenges us. You know, in 2 Chronicles 15, after Asa had defeated that million-man Ethiopian army, the prophet Azariah came to Asa and he says this, the Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And we're told next that Israel had been a long time without the true God. They weren't worshiping the true God. They'd been without a teaching priest. They'd been without the law. They didn't know how to live. 
didn't know what to do, and things weren't going well for them. But he goes on to say after that, but when they in their trouble, because trouble came upon them because of all that, it says, when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, it says, he was found of them. Now that should be encouraging. It really should to all of us. God is faithful. Anytime that we get in trouble and turn to him, here's what that's telling us right there. That's the word of the Lord. He will not hide his face from us. And James says the same thing. Draw nigh to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Obviously, a person's having trouble, but he says, you draw an eye to God, and what is the promise? God will do what? Turn his back on you when you do all that? No. What does he say? He will draw an eye to you. That is a promise we can bank on. That's Old and New Testament. But here's the thing I want to get to. The prophet didn't stop there. He didn't say when Israel in their trouble turned to the Lord, he was found on them. He didn't stop there. He had further encouraged Asa. This is the last thing he told Asa. Listen to this. We're talking about intercession. We'll do all of those things, be persistent, have a burden in their heart for someone else, not going to give up. God will reward us. The answer is certain. Here's what the prophet said. Second Chronicles 15, 7, he says, Be ye strong, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. You seek the Lord, you will never be disappointed. Don't be weak. Don't be weary. Jesus said men ought always to pray and not to faint, get discouraged, get weak, give up. Because he says God does care. He's not like the unjust judge. He will come and avenge his elect who cry out to him day and night. He will avenge them. How soon? How quick? Speedily. He's not like that. That is a word for us as we intercede for others that we see their need. Be strong. Let not your hands be weak. You're praying for your lost child, lost loved one, lost co-worker. Your labor, he says, shall be rewarded. Here, the question is for us today, it is not, is God able? We've looked at that, didn't we? We looked at several verses in Isaiah 50, 59. He's saying, I am able. My hand's not short. I've got all the power that's needed. Not a matter of that. And the question is not either, is God willing? Is his ear heavy? Is it that he can't hear you? No, he's saying he doesn't have an ear problem. God's not in his 80s with a hearing aid. The, the battery went out. Happens to my dad. That didn't happen. The question is for us today, is it what? Are we willing to bear another's burdens and then take it in faith to the Lord? That's the question, isn't it? Are we willing to sacrifice for another when it's not convenient and nothing in it for ourselves? But we see this all through the Bible. I mean, we could give illustration out of illustration that fit into this pattern of intercession. You know, the man born of four carried on the stretcher. We have all of this, don't we? There's an urgent need. They love their friend. The four guys are carrying their friend and they made his burden their burden. He was truly born of four, outside and inside. They were bearing his burden, and they had great faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here again, what did they use their faith for? They didn't ask a thing for themselves, did they? 
those men that carried that man on that stretcher. They used their faith to bring their friend to the one they knew could help him because they were powerless. But they had faith. We're going to carry this guy to the one that we know can help him. And it was inconvenient. They had to take off work. There's great crowds around the house Jesus is at. They got this stretcher there. They can't get through. They're trying to get through. It's a hassle carrying this guy around. And then they got to try to get him in that stretcher up on that roof. Now, it wasn't, you know, 10 feet, 15 feet high like our roofs, but it was high enough. And they had to work on getting him up there without having him fall off the thing. That would have been embarrassing, right? It's a hassle. They're saying it's inconvenient. Nothing in it for them. Had to tear a roof up and then deal with the guy afterwards on that. Nothing in it for them at all. A major hassle. But they had love for their friend, didn't they? Love for their friend and a desire to see him help, find help from the only one that could help him. And they couldn't do anything except pray. That's how it translates down to us, doesn't it? Couldn't do anything except pray. You know, that story of that man is in all three of what's known as the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, are the synoptic gospels. They tell mainly the same stories. And in all three of those accounts, I looked it up, it says the same thing in all three of them. It says, when they made that hole and lowered that mount, it says, Jesus saw their faith. Not a word is said about that guy laying on that pallet's faith. Not a word. Now, I think he had faith. I do. You know how you know that? Because when Jesus said to him, arise, take up thy bed and walk, he didn't hesitate, did he? That was his faith in action right there, wasn't it? He obeyed. But the focus of that thing, once again, is on whose faith and what they did. Interceding on behalf of someone like the centurion, that is the point of the story, isn't it? He saw their faith, and their faith got that man healed because they are the ones that had to carry him to Jesus. He couldn't get there on his own. He needed their help. Sometimes when you're in a trial, it is hard to praise, isn't it? And you need others' help. I just need you to pray for me. I am battling here. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all, is there? I don't think so. Their love and their hearts did what? It overcame all the obstacles, had them persistent, and they knew. They knew number six, didn't they? They knew that they were going to be rewarded and they were not going to take no for an answer. And they didn't. So my thing is, can one person make a difference? What about four? What about a united church? Leviticus 26 says, if you walk in my statutes, got to be righteous. Keep my commandments and do them. We've got to be righteous. But he goes on, it says this in Leviticus 26, You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred. And a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Because God says, I will have respect unto you, and I will make you fruitful. Amen? That's what God will do. And I'm convinced that behind every person that comes to know the Lord, there is somebody that has prayed for them. Because nobody in himself can change. Don't we know that? What, what are we? We are dead 
before we come to the Lord, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, are we not? We're not bringing ourselves back to life. How do you get a person to come alive? It has to start in someone else. It all started in the heart of God, didn't it? We're back to Isaiah 53. It had to happen there. We had to be in Jesus' heart where he took our guilt and our shame, our burden, and prayed for us. It had to start there. But I believe that comes back to us, though. I believe when someone comes alive, it's because someone else prayed for them and someone else took their burden. I mean, I'm sitting there listening to Mr. Rudy. How many times did he keep saying, my brother and sister-in-law prayed for us, prayed for me time and time again. That's how it happened. My sister, I'm as lost as can be. I'm having all kinds of demonic trouble in my life. And my sister and a girl that had never really met me, didn't know me at all, a friend of hers up there, they're fasting for weeks for me to be delivered and saved. I didn't have anything to do with that. I just reaped the benefits. I guarantee if we heard testimonies in here, if nothing else, the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for you, prayed you in the kingdom. Somebody's praying. Somebody took you as a burden on their heart and brought you in. And shouldn't we return the favor, maybe? Think about that all. I tell my sister, I owe you a debt. I'll never be able to repay you back, sis. <laughs> and that's the way it is. So it helps to understand something. God has to pray. And you're like, what? God doesn't need to pray. We're the ones that need to pray. No, he prays. Did you know that? He prays. What do you do with Hebrews 7.25? It says, wherefore, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. God prays. He's praying for you and me, isn't he? He intercedes for us. Turn to Romans 8. Just look at this real quick. Romans 8, look what it says in verse 34. We're saying we got somebody praying. The Lord prays. Verse 34, it says, Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. And look what it says he's doing. God, in the flesh, who is even at the right hand of God, doing what? Who also makes intercession for us. God prays, and he also prays. God prays through us. He makes his burden our burden, and his prayer our prayers. Did you know that? It's in this same chapter. If you'll look up in verses 26 to 27, that's what it's saying. Verses 26, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But what happens there? The Spirit Himself does what? Makes intercession for us. How does He do that? Which groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit does what makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit of God gives us a burden for one another. Have you ever had that happen? That even will even happen when we have prayer meeting here. It's just like He kind of will anoint certain aspects of when we're praying for something. He's sovereignly doing that. You can't work that up. And that's God praying. He's praying, but He's praying through us as His yielded vessels. And that's why it's so important that we pray and pray for one another and pray together. Amen? Can't emphasize that enough. People don't change on their own. We become a channel, so to speak. God uses and works through us. 
through the Spirit praying through us, whether it's for salvation, healing, deliverance, for their faith to be strengthened, whatever it is. He's praying through us. That's what we just read there in verses 26 and 27. I didn't make it up. I don't think I read anything into there that wasn't there. We underestimate what God can do through us if we would just yield and pray for others. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, it doesn't say it avails just a wee little bit or it might. It says it avails much. It has great impact. We're back to where we were at the beginning. Just one man or woman can make a difference. I'm telling you, one man or one woman in this situation that looks hopeless. That's what we're talking about with the centurion. One man made a difference in that boy's life. One man could have saved the whole city of Jerusalem. One woman, Amy Carmichael, went to India as a missionary. And God showed her at one point, he says, you're not going to marry anybody, you're going to be single. And she got to India she found something, we're talking about taking a burden on of others. She found out something that appalled her. So at that time in India, if a man died, they would burn his body and they'd tie his wife on there and she would get burnt with him. That's the way it went. That's the way their religion was. What do you have when both your parents are burned? You're an orphan. You got these kids with no parents. The boys, they could work. They were worth whatever. The girls, though, you know what they would do with a lot of these girls? Young girls would be given to the temple to be used as temple prostitutes. That's how they worship there in India. 11-year-old girls in the temple as prostitutes in the name of religion. And she sees this and she is shocked. English Amy Carmichael is shocked. And she gets to become burdened, burdened for these girls. And she began praying and she began working, doing things to get these girls out of the temple and started to have some success doing it. Their problem was she's cutting into the priest's income, messing with their income. So what do the priests do? They go to the Indian government. Hey, this girl's messing with us. She's messing with our system. She's messing with my income. So what do the Indian government goes to the British government? The British government goes to the people that are the British missionaries. Hey, all this girl's causing problems. The British missionaries go to Amy Carmichael and they tell her, you need to stop what you're doing. And her thing is, but what about these girls? And they're like, well, yeah, that's terrible. That's happening. But you're messing things up for everybody else. And Amy Carmichael is like, yeah, but what about the girls? What about the girls? And Amy Carmichael had to deal with rejection from her fellow missionaries, the government. She's being hassled by everybody. She's isolated. She's misunderstood. All those priests cared about priests of religion for these people. All they cared about was the money. And she's meeting with dead ends. So she goes to prayer. And God gives her a vision. And in her vision, she sees the Lord kneeling under a tree, weeping. She said, but it wasn't an olive tree in the garden. It was a tamarind tree like the ones you would see in India at the time. She's him there weeping. And she saw that he was weeping for these young girls, for these children. And it's as if the Lord said to her, that's right, Amy. It isn't your problem. It's my problem. And I'm just looking for somebody to share this burden with me. And here's what Amy Carmichael wrote. She wrote this. She says, and the only thing that one who cared 
could do was to go softly and kneel down beside him so that he would not be alone in his sorrow over the little children. She says, I'm not going to let the Lord have that burden himself. I'm going to share in his burden. And that's what the Lord's asking us to do today. And Paul wrote this in Philippians 3. This is what he said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's what Paul wrote. And God is speaking to us today and he's asking if we're willing to be that one person he's looking for who is willing to take on the burdens of others and allow him to pray through us and to see results on their behalf. Amen? Because to answer the question, one person can make a huge difference. Ask the centurion's servant. Amen? Let's pray. And Father, I just ask, Lord, you'll speak to us clearly, Father, that we will learn to be intercessors, that that's what you want us to be on behalf of others. As we see their needs, Lord, that we'll allow your love to be in us and that we'll take their burden on us as if it's our burdens and we'll pray accordingly, Lord, knowing that you are faithful and you're more than willing and able to help those that we intercede for, Lord. And I also ask, Lord, that you'll deal with all of us here with the sin in our life, whatever is there that would keep us, Lord, from being that one righteous person, that you would hear their prayer, Lord, that you'll make us righteous people with no hindrances, either in our marriage or in our personal life or in any way that would keep us from having our prayers answered and to having your ear. And I thank you that you'll do that. I thank you for speaking to us today. And we do that in Jesus' name.